Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, a beer-soaked moniker, a cold-hearted orb, 1,000 dollies are a-dreamin', and introducing the Beatles to the Mellotron. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. So tonight, I am uh, joined, as always, by our host, Doug Cooper. Hello, everybody, especially ladies. (laughs) Our uh, fantastic producer, J.M. Rowe. Hello, America and the rest of the world. And uh, I am your humble co-host, Tony Slagle. Uh, Tonight, we're taking on an album um, that, uh, at the time it was released, was called a ponderous, I'm sorry, called a ponderous mound of thought jello. It's uh, Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues. Um, And uh, we're going to tackle that album tonight. And I'm just going to throw out the first question, which is, uh, Doug? Why are we talking about this band and this album in particular? Okay. I've tried to get across to our audience that we focus on albums as a complete unit. And I think more than anything we've touched so far, this is an album that you cannot take apart. Now, it does get taken apart. It has two big hits on it that are uh, played separately, and they stand up on their own. But for the most part, to experience this, you need to listen to it in its entirety, beginning to end without a break, mm-hmm. except the break to flip it over, which we <laughs> we appreciate here. Now, I need to give a uh, disclaimer to begin with. I have a theory of, I call it the portal of generous uh, youth acceptance. And I'm going to say that everybody has music that came to them when they were very young and were not judges of music yet. And they accept it. And because it got in early while they were young, it gets in there and it stays in there. And they give it a special pass that they wouldn't give to other music. And I'm going to go ahead and freely admit that this album qualifies uh, I've talked before about my friend whose father had the uh, he had a room full of about a thousand records because that was his business. He sold bought and sold used records on the Dragon Austin. And I believe his favorite band was the Moody Blues. And at a very young age, he started playing this for us. And uh, they actually 
took us to see the Moody Blues when we were still quite young. So my experience with the Moody Go- Blues goes way back, and I loved them a lot very early. And then I think I went through a rebellion stage where I pushed them away, kind of like the little boy that throws rocks at his dog and says, go on, get out of here in the movies. <laughs> and then uh, and then as an adult, I, I begin to really appreciate this band. It's a very unusual band. It doesn't fit the rock and roll world yeah. at all. You have a lead singer who wears an ascot. <laughs> uh, I really think the Moody Blues are the gentlemen of rock and roll. Well, uh, they got one guy that's died. What did he die of? A drug overdose? A plane wreck? A car wreck? A shootout with somebody? No. no. Prostate cancer. <laughs> only old people die of prostate <laughs> cancer. I bet this is the only rocker that ever died of prostate cancer. No, uh, besides Frank Zappa. Uh, Zappa, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey Doug, that I want to I want to kind of piggyback on what you said because my my stepdad growing up was a monster Moody Blues fan, and I I have the same I have a very similar attachment to to this band that you have. Um, when I bought my first CD player in nineteen mid eighties, sometime the first album I bought was the one we're talking about tonight, Days of Future Past. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this was, this band was very much a part of my musical DNA. Uh, I, at one point, it's not the case anymore, but at one point I had probably seen them live more than any other band I'd seen live. <laughs> a lot of that has to do with the fact that they toured a lot when I was kind of getting into them. So they played a lot, but, uh, also I just enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I, like you, I think pushed them away because there's a hipness thing you get a certain age really you think that listening to stuff like this may not be hip enough for you. So you're looking for other things. Right. But as you get older, you start remembering why you liked it and all that pretentious nonsense about it being, having to be hip or having to have yeah. some sort of deeper. It's not you know, edgy. Yeah. yeah. It's not edgy. It's, um, they don't, they don't, um, they don't have the anti-establishment <laughs> rock and roll deal. One of the things that occurred to me going over this for the last two weeks is I decided if I were to join a rock and roll band, this is the band that I would want to join. Uh, <laughs> well, they don't have all the drama yeah. and everything. And, you know, we talked about how they I, I think you'll talk more about this later, but they toured with the Beatles and saw the Beatles couldn't even go outside or into a restaurant because they'd get mobbed. And they determined right then they didn't want their faces on album covers. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, when you talk about this being a gentleman's band, I think in a way, even though a lot of people throw this, this uh, tag on the kinks, the Moody Blues may be one of the most British bands out there as well. They're very, very British. Yes, but they're more, they're more London than, than uh, Birmingham, you know? Like the Kinks kind of are are uh, blue collar, and I would kind of put the Moody Blues as white collar, um, that, the, or white the satin. Moody Blues. If you're having a garden party, that's the band you're going to invite to party. <laughs> well, so your mother-in-law. If you're having a party at the Cavern Club, you're going to invite it, the Kinks. It, it, it's it's funny because uh, you know considering how they started, um, three of the guys that ended up in the classical lineup of the band played together early on like in the late 50s mm-hmm. in a band called called El Riot and the Rebels Baby, 
and the lead <laughs> the lead singer at the time was Ray Thomas, and he used to go out on stage dressed in a blue satin Mexican torador suit <laughs> and play. And and the other the other two guys in the band were John Lodge, who uh, was was you know the was player. the bassist, yeah. the bassist, but he was fairly young. And then Mike Pinder was in and out of the lineup. Um, and what broke up uh, L Riot and the Rebels was that John Lodge went off to technical college and Mike yeah, Pinder I mean, joined, joined the yeah, army. So he didn't, we weren't able to rejoin everybody until he got his degree. Yeah. 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 The, uh, what you said about the Moody Blues being the most British band, I think is really true, which yeah. is that adds to the irony of the fact that they were so much more successful. I guess I should say they are so much more successful in the United States than they are in the United Kingdom. And oh yeah, you talked oh, yeah. about how many times you've seen them. I I think I've seen them five times, and the reason for that is they tour so much, and I don't think they go very many other places outside the United States because they have a special, they have a special home here on American radio. Yeah, and they would, and they even later on when their albums were uh, were you know um, not huge hit machines, they would still play big places like they'd sell out big places um mm -hmm. you know before that became a thing because that's not uncommon now for a, a, a well-known act to tour without an album or something and, and sell it out because of the nostalgia factor but the moody blues were doing that in the in the mid 80s Never heard orchestral parts uh, leading into uh, pop music, you know, a, a rock and roll song or just a, you know, I, I don't know if you can call these really rock and roll songs, but. Just, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. it, it wasn't, I mean, this album is so unique, but it wasn't unheard of for orchestration to be in pop music. I mean, the Beatles sure. were doing it forever. I mean, Eleanor Rigby is essentially a, a string. It's all strings. There's no yeah. rock and roll instruments in that yeah. song. What these guys did with this was so unusual and out of the ordinary. And right. as Doug said, it's it's a piece of music that's so difficult to pull the songs out, even though there were singles because you needed singles, right? To mm -hmm. pull the songs out of the hole because right. um, you know it just well, it, it it it's it it is what it is, you know. Yeah. This I Tony this this album I believe is an accident, one of those beautiful accidents that happens. Nobody designed what happened. Could, right. could you explain a little bit about what the Moody Blues were leading up to this? Because it's it's just a crazy, strange story that a rhythm and blues yeah. came out like this. So, um, yeah, they were, as you said, they were essentially a rhythm and blues band, uh, you know, which wasn't uncommon for the UK at the time before John Lodge rejoined them. And before Justin Hayward joined the band, they had a couple other guys in the band. One of them was a guy, a bass player named Clint Warwick and another guy named Denny Lane, who people who are listening to this may know as someone who was with wings for a long, Paul McCartney and wings for a long time.
So yeah, they went from the L Riot band to a band called the Crew Cats, which, which when Mike Mike Pender uh, came back from the army, and then they went to Hamburg, which is what bands did at the time. Um, and at, and it was not very successful. It wasn't like the Beatles story. And they came back and they got Denny Lane. They got Graham Edge to play drums, and then the bassist Clint Clint Warwick. And uh, contrary to what JM said about them being a, a London band, the first time they appeared as the Moody Blues was in 1964 in Birmingham. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was their lineup. That was their lineup from 64 to 66 Pri- prior to kind of establishing themselves in the Moody Blues, although that was a, that was part of what they were trying to do. They had they had this this hope that they would be uh, they would get a sponsorship from this brewery called M&B Brewery in England. And uh, and as such, they needed initials, right, that matched that. So they were the MBs at one point. They were the MB5. Uh, <laughs> and, and then the Moody Blues also played into that. They they say, you know, on on reflection that that also had to do with the Duke Ellington song Mood Indigo, that there was a play on that. I think it's, it was it's just a great, great tune. Yeah, yeah but I think it was I think it was more of just they were looking for someone to sponsor the band, so they came up with it, but it it didn't materialize. But they kept the name the Moody Blues, um, and then they uh, they ended up um, you know recording some stuff. They got they got a an odd I don't know how odd this was. It seems odd to me, but they got a, a management deal where um, a, a, a an ex Decca A and R guy named Alex Murray helped them land a recording contract with Decca Records. And uh, in in '64, and uh, and what they did was they were part of this management company and they recorded stuff, but they leased the recordings back to Decca, so they weren't actually signed to Decca yet, which is a weird thing. I'm not sure yeah. how that worked, but but um, they had a single that didn't go very, didn't do well, called "Steal Your Heart Away." That was their first single. Which was called Go Now. Yeah, it's a remake of of, of a of a classic uh, uh, soul song, blue soul yeah, yeah. rhythm and blues song, church song. And and that thing shot up to the. It's their. It's oddly enough, as storied as this band is, it's their only number one single. Is go now. They never that right? had another. Yeah. They never had another number one. And that's single. without their hit machine, Justin Haywood. Yeah, yeah. and De- Denny Lane. Denny Lane uh, sang lead on it, and uh, it went straight to number one, and went to ten, the number ten in the U.S. Um, and it is nothing like the album we're talking about. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's definitely an R and B song with that with that British invasion tint to it. It's a mm-hmm. great song. I love that song. I love it. Love yeah, it. Love it's a great it. Great song. Um, I came yeah. to it late in my Moody Blues life, um, and the first time I heard it, it was like you know like someone slamming the brakes <laughs> on a truck, and my head hit the windshield. But because yeah. uh, it was so un- unlike what I thought, but then and then I heard, heard it yeah. more, and I was like, "This is great." They did um, a great version of it. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but anyway, so they had an album. They put out an album before this, before Days of Future Past called The Magnificent Moody's that was kind of a Mersey beat R&B type of thing, which had a lot of, uh, it had Go Now on one side um, and then a bunch of classic R&B songs. And then four Denny Lane, Michael Pinder originals were on it. Um, it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the hit machine everyone thought it was going to be. Um, and then, uh, and then because they were having some significant issues with, with making, you know, making progress up the charts, uh, two of the band members left and that, and that would be, uh, Clint Warwick and, uh, Denny Lane. They both left, um, Denny Lane left in 66 and the Moody Blues were at that point on the verge of falling apart. Right. Um, but then, uh, John Lodge comes back to the picture gets out of college he's raring to go again wants to get involved again and then of all things uh eric burden of the animals recommends justin hayward to mike pinder and according to the stories i've seen uh mike pinder phoned up justin hayward after reading his lead guitar application and being impressed by a song hayward had a 45 single out called london is behind me and he was impressed by that so he got him to join the band but they still were a r&b band an r&b band at that point um yeah and then this is a great story they're playing <laughs> they're playing a club in stockton and this fan goes backstage who according to the fan has just seen the worst piece of junk he's ever seen in his life <laughs> and, and he wants he's he feels obligated to tell the band how bad they are and, <laughs> and according to justin hayward the guy was so harsh he called him rubbish he said it was the worst thing he ever seen that he and ray thomas burst into tears almost and realized <laughs> that this this wasn't going to work they were not hitting hitting they weren't connecting with fans obviously so mm-hmm. that they would start doing their own material. And uh, they recorded a couple of singles. One was a single called Fly Me High, which is actually pretty good. It's got that quintessential high signature ah sound yeah. behind it that that mm-hmm. I think uh, that's John Lodge, isn't it, that does that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, when I think of the Moody Blues, uh, it, when we talk about this album, it's that background singing. Yeah. That, uh, and, you know, it's not just John Lodge by himself, but he's kind of the leader of it. Yeah. The others yeah. join in with that. But it is it is immediately recognizable the first time you, oh, this is the Moody Blues, if you, if you couldn't tell before that. And the other is the mm-hmm. spoken uh, word stuff. Well, on the Mellotron, that, uh, yeah, that they began. Well, so, so yeah, that that "Fly Me High" song was the first song that had the Mellotron on it. Uh, Mike uh, Mike Pinder's Mellotron on it. Um, yeah. That we, he we bought. probably need to say what a Mellotron is. <clears throat> Jam. Yeah. So uh, yeah, a Mellotron is a keyboard instrument. It was introduced in uh, the early '60s, and the thing that makes it unique is it is actual. Uh, taped sounds when you hit a key when you hit the keyboard what you're actually doing is you're hitting uh, a an actual string sound there's a tape under it so that like a tape head is being uh pressed against the uh that an actual tape that's going around so you only had like eight seconds that's the longest you could play a note 
is eight seconds because that's when the tape would end. And then when you release the the key, the tape would rewind quickly back and then it would play again. So you had every note that you played on the keyboard was actually a tape. It was just a sample of a just, instrument yeah. from a symphony. Yeah. Pre-hip-hop. Yeah, and it wasn't just that they had uh, symphony sounds. They actually had rhythm tracks. They had whole uh, like whole bands behind uh, with each key. And that's how it originally got started. It was in, it was um, marketed as kind of a parlor instrument, and it was very expensive. And so only really um, rich people could have it. So the first people that had it were like uh, a prince in somewhere in Saudi Arabia, or and another one was the uh, a princess there at uh, Buckingham Palace. That they were notoriously difficult to keep in tune because the tapes would get warped under any sort of heat. They had to be in kind of pristine uh, condition. They were originally just huge. There was actually, there came as originally two keyboards uh, next to each other. And then they started making stage models that were a lot smaller. And those are the ones that you are uh, most probably most familiar with or the ones that you hear on most records. It's such a um, complicated mechanism. I can't believe it ever yeah. anything when you see one i encourage everyone to look it up and see one on youtube it's it's such a complicated mechanism i wouldn't expect it to work more than three times in a row so doug yeah. um as jm mentioned these were very expensive how in the heck did some guy in a band that wasn't successful get one of these well that's that's another one of these crazy stories but mike pinder was a uh he was an engineer at the Mellotron factory, and through that connection, he was able to uh, fix up his buddies uh, with, with the Mellotron, and he was the guy that played it. And uh, I think w when you hear the Moody Blues, you're, you're hearing most of the songs that you hear, you're hearing Mike Pender play that thing. And you may be thinking you're listening to a symphony or, or uh, strings, but... Uh, a lot of the times it's Mike Pender. Well, I think that I don't know if this is the time to mention it, but I think we also need to mention that some of the some of you, some of your favorite songs are done on a Mellotron. So, for instance, Strawberry Fields Forever. Let me take you down. Uh, yeah, I, I was. I was going to mention how how that little story happened. Um, so the the Moody Blues in the Denny Lane Clint Warwick era toured. They supported the Beatles on their last UK tour in '65. So they were yeah. they were friendly with the Beatles. And uh, Pinder, who was working for this company, Streetly Electronics, that was doing you know manufacturing Mellotrons, convinced John Lennon that he needed a Mellotron. So uh, Mike Pender is uh, responsible for the Mellotron being on, I mean, in a roundabout way or more direct way for it being on Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, yeah. and, th and then a little kind of little side note on that was uh, they were such good friends, which is odd. I never knew the Beatles and the Moody Blues were buddies, but yeah. uh, evidently Mike Pender and Ray Thomas uh, sang harmony and played harmonica on I Am the Walrus and the Fool on the Hill. Um, yeah. So there is a connection there. Weird connection, but it's there. Yep. Yeah. They, uh, apparently that was a small world. 
yeah. yeah. And the Mel- but the Mellotron became just a a monster hit. It, King Crimson used it, uh, and uh, another famous use of it is Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. Tony, go ahead and uh, tell the rest of the story, how we went from uh, going out to uh, the Borgiak. Well, yeah. So uh, as, as I've mentioned, the band was not doing financially very well. And uh, and their contract, with they had eventually signed with contract after that odd relationship they had. They si- signed a contract with DECA. Um, and... Uh, and that was set to expire, and they owed the label several several thousand pounds in advances that the label had given them, and they weren't making money off of their off of the magnificent Moody's or any singles that were coming out. Uh, the second album they were working on uh, for Deck had never materialized, and they um, they needed to do something, and they got the support of this AR manager called Hugh Mendel, uh, who was mm-hmm. instrumental in establishing Decca's. Uh, subsidiary imprint Darum Records, and uh, the label ha- was working on this new stereo sound system that they termed the Deramic or Deramic. I don't know how you say it. Stereo sound system, and they wanted to show it off. And Decca was primarily an, uh, a classical music label at the time. They had a few pop groups, but it was mostly classical music. So they went to the Moody Blues with a deal, and the deal was this: We will forgive your debt. If you make a rock and roll version of, and I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Dvorak, Dvorak's New World Symphony. They wanted to show off the sound system. And so the Moody's kind of being stuck between a rod and kind of hard place agreed to do it, but they did, had this weird caveat. They wanted artistic control. And, uh, and this guy, this Hugh Mendel guy convinced the label to give it to them. <laughs> <laughs> so they went into the studio to record this rock and roll version of Javorjak's new world symphony and ended up, uh, bringing something back that was not that. <laughs> <laughs> And they were days of future past. <laughs> the idea that you were going to turn that into a rock and roll piece, I I don't understand how anyone who has ever heard it could come to that idea. I don't know but if anyone would ever any divorce act. It's be. the most wonderful accident because these guys said, "Hey, it's it's not working out, but we have some ideas," and the the producer and the uh, engineer went along with it. And somebody we're going to be talking about a lot, probably um, the uh, the arranger Peter Knight just came through really strong, and they put together this album, which is about a man's day from waking up until going to bed. It is the it is a concept album of it the is. first degree. Like it's it's a song cycle. It's not just a collection yeah. of songs that are interrelated in some way. I'd say that's likely, if not the first, one of the first quote unquote concept albums with that in mind. I do have a question for you guys though. 
So this album is called Psychedelic. It's called Progressive Rock, depending on who you ask. Um, is that right? And if not, what do you call this stuff? I find both of those uh, labels not very useful, but I don't think there is very much at all that is psychedelic about about this album. And uh, I don't think... For- I think there's one song. Yeah. Well, no, I was going to say the same thing that's psychedelic about Odyssey and Oracle, which is nothing. The album cover. That's yeah. (laughs) It is. It is as groovy of an album cover as as you can ask for. And we're going to talk about all the many, many similarities between this and that album. But uh, I do love this album cover as I did Odyssey and Oracle. Well, uh, but the psychedelic deal, I, I think that term's thrown around way too much. And I don't think there's much of that here at all. Well, what would but, you call uh, what would you call a day in the life by the Beatles? That That's kind of how I look at it. Is it psychedelic? Is it no? Is it art rock? I mean, I think it's, all these labels are stupid. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think that song in particular is so much more. um you know, it's so, uh, not to get off on a sidetrack, A Day in the Life, but it's so interesting how that song came about. It's so much more than any of those labels. I mean, that middle piece when, when, Car- when McCartney is singing is mm-hmm. is as poppy as you can get, you right. know? And right. then it's and then the part Lennon does is much more atmospheric. I don't, I don't know if I'd call it psychedelic. Um, I think Harrison was the one who wrote the real psychedelic songs for the Beatles. I mean, his yeah. songs are or, you know, with the sitar and all that. So, what I mean, what people yeah. consider psychedelic, Harrison was the one who did that the most. Yeah. I mean, I'm only sleeping is probably as, you know, that's psychedelic too, to a certain extent. Sure. But. I think it's such a useless term. Um, I, I think it's a lot like uh, the commentary on football where they say something stupid, like that's a lot of physicality. Or he caught that out in the flats, like one part of the football field's flatter than the other part. Well, they just have terms they use that mean nothing. And I think that I, happens with rock critics. I think I, I don't disagree with you for the most part, but I do. Uh, psychedelic, I think, is an odd term. But I think there is a there is a a, a, a spectrum of what I would call progressive rock, mainly because I've lived in that spectrum for a long time. Yeah. Um, and this oh. is not. This is not it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it progressive rock. People, there's no, people, yeah, there's no I mean, weird ass time signature changes or the, no, but they're not trying to impress you with their right. musicality. And, and and what what the parts of the album that are that way are the symphonic parts of the album, mm-hmm. not the rock song. So I don't know how you could call it. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's its own thing. There's not another thing out there. I mean, there were other bands that tried to do this. Pink Floyd tried to do it with Adam Hart Mother, but that yeah. was a nightmare. Um, yeah, it was. You know, so. <laughs> well, um, we are experts on psychedelic rock. Do you all know why? Because uh, of the 13th floor elevators? <laughs> yep. First band to call themselves that right here in Austin, Texas. That's right. Well, yep. uh, we're talking about, we're about to get into the symphony part of this and uh, what an unusual record this is. And uh, be- because of that, I need to share with you all. Uh, one of our non-fans uh, called up and left a message. And before we go further, I think I should share that with you all so that we can respond to him. Hello, vinyl crap. 
This is Stoner Steve reminding you that you still suck. Days of future past? Could you get any lamer? Are you doing easy listening music now? Are you broadcasting from elevators? Are you going to go do Fantasia next? Y'all must be three Disney princesses waiting for bunny rabbits and bluebirds to bring your clothes and shoes in the morning. Meanwhile, I'm going to be listening to real rock and roll, like April Wine, UFO, and of course, Fog Hat. Have fun in your fairyland of love. Well, he wasn't very shy about sharing his opinion on that. Uh, What would y'all say in response? On a superficial listen, you might come to that conclusion. But if you'll step back and spread your mind out a little bit and listen to this record, you'll be able to overcome some of those trappings. I don't think this is not an album that you can listen to in heavy traffic. Uh, You know, there's times when I kept expecting Frank Sinatra's voice to start coming in at some point <laughs> it is kind of uh, so it does have that kind of feel to it but i i don't know i've got a i can feel and and i we've talked about this a little bit before we started that my musical uh tastes have changed slightly since i first got this album in the mid 80s i can kind of understand to a certain extent the whole this is easy listening stuff yeah i mean it's not it's not what you would consider um you know rock if you will yeah it came out and they call rock it's nothing like pink floyd it's well it came out it came out in 67 there's very few songs on this as as doug mentioned uh you know there's uh outside of peak hour there's not anything really that rocks on this thing um that doesn't mean it's not worthy of listening to um but i i kind of get that i mean uh, it's no fog hat what can we say it's no fog Yeah, and we, to be fair to Stoner Steve, a lot of critics don't like this album. It's there's there's kind of two camps: either you love it or you hate it. And uh, I've got an album, or I've got a a book of the hundred hundred worst records ever made, and this is like in the top ten. Well, uh, that person's a horrible person. <laughs> well, what's what's funny about that, JM, is that um, you know I I mentioned earlier when we were starting the ponderous mound of thought jello, mm-hmm. and there was another review that called it said the Moody Blues are strangling themselves in conceptual goo. Was another review. <laughs> both both of those both of those publications later on did a one eighty on this album. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's a whole lot of lot to be said about rock critics and their lo- wanting to yeah. or worried about losing their hipster cred. And then when something yeah. becomes established and becomes part of the soundscape, they kind of they either relax or they realize, boy, was I a dope, you know? Yeah, and I'm um, I'm one of those guys. I mean, you got we've all had ambivalence about this album. I I remember the first time I heard it, I thought it was the greatest thing ever, and then I started listening to it. Man, it was spoken word things are so pretentious and why do they have yeah. this giant symphony orchestra behind them why don't they just play the songs it's overproduced but, uh, man they yeah, sold totally out. <clears throat> yeah uh i listen i'll be the odd man out and say the spoken word stuff are a little pretentious cold-hearted orb that rules the night removes the colors from our sight red is gray and yellow white but we decide which is right which is an illusion if you take it apart and look at its pieces you know that saying we kill to dissect 
Yeah. Once yeah. this album is stripped out into its pieces, there's only two songs that hold up, probably. Yeah. Or maybe three songs that hold up by themselves. But when you put it all together, and I include the spoken word, I guess this poem is cold-hearted orb. Uh, what's the second one called? I don't remember. You're, but, just, a, uh, you're just a fan of Brave Helios. <laughs> well i am i've been mistaken for him before um it's, i think uh, you when these are inside the uh the context of the album they work they work very well I, I do well think they work well and it and this became a thing with the moody blues this isn't the last time they no. did this this was their deal after a be. while yeah it, it was it's a it's a let's tell us we give credit where credit's due uh pender reads this thing yeah, and, got a great it, voice. Uh, sounds like he's a Shakespearean actor when he's reading it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was written by uh, the drummer. Yeah, Graham the Edge. original Edge. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, so. and 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 Pinder's voice works really well on this. It doesn't always work when he sings. I don't think. I know. I think. I guess that's right. I it, I think they have four four strong singers in this band he um, uh, he can sing but there are other times when he's just got that kind of it's almost tone deafness and one of the songs on this album feels that way um yeah. when we get to it we'll talk about it but he's really it's he's got the perfect voice for that cold hearted orb that rules yeah. the night you know <laughs> i'm sir it john feel good <laughs> and i'm i'm gonna go ahead and say there's probably no other poem that's been played on the radio more than this one yeah. It's uh, it's strange, but the yeah. album-oriented radio when they play "Nights in White Satin," they usually include mm -hmm. the, that uh, outro part. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, the last part. Well, yeah. let's uh, let's talk about how. Let's get into the album. Was uh, the orchestra here was the London Festival Orchestra? What can you tell us about them, JM? <laughs> the London Festival Orchestra was just basically the house orchestra of the uh, of Decca Records. So as um, you know, this Electra had their their Swampers. Decca Record had their uh, London Festival Orchestra. They actually did go on to. Um, Produced some actual classical recording. Conductor and arranger was Peter Knight, and uh, so yeah, they were they they were kind of Deco just kind of wanted to have a house orchestra for what I guess CBS had their house orchestra as well with Toscanini and there. all those guys. Yeah. Well, they 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 were around since the fifties, and I think Deco probably used them because you know I I'm pretty sure classical music was part of the um what do you call it the uh, not open source, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, you didn't have to pay royalties. Yeah. So shooting ducks in a barrel. 
Yeah, so they just got these guys together and they would they would cut off a, an album of some sort of classical piece and release it and it would sell, you know, and they yeah. didn't have to pay these guys much because they were the house orchestra. The, the high fidelity, as we used to say in the good old days when people <laughs> didn't listen to everything on their phone, high fidelity was a really big deal with the uh, long hairs, the, uh, well, the, right. the fans and, of uh, classical music. And that goes back to what we talked about, about why they wanted the Moody Blues to make a rock version of of that Dvorak um, symphony. Uh, w- just real quick before we forget to say it. Um, so this was recorded in stereo to, to pa- pass off that sound system. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that was extremely uncommon for pop music back at the time. Back and, wasn't the there a, and there was a, eventually a quadraphonic recording or yeah i think that i think that came out in the late 70s i want to say maybe but what was funny about the stereo recording that they did because that was the official recording of the album which is really unusual in 1967 the band had to go back in the studio and remix it in mono because nobody could nobody had stereos (laughs) to listen to the original stereo recording of it well and and i think before one one more thing we need to talk about doug before we get into the album is peter knight i mean in a way he is uh as well, not in a way. He's as as uh, important to this album as the Moody Blues were. Yeah. Can you uh, can you describe how they went about actually doing this? This was a fast uh, fast production five five days of uh, recording with and then Peter Knight going and putting together. Yeah, that, this is what blows my mind is he's got to go write out the parts for his uh, festival orchestra. And uh, when I hear this, I don't know. I don't know enough to judge, but it sounds like he just nails it. He takes the themes out of each one of these tunes, sticks them into the overture, which is the first thing we're going to get to. It's called Day Begins. Um, And it's it's just spot on. And then for the rest of the album, he's working in between the songs. There's no break. The breaks are all filled with this symphony Mm -hmm. and uh he doesn't ever get in the way of the songs but he but he does add to them one of the anniversaries of this album the moody blues went on the road with the full orchestra Mm -hmm. and nobody had the scores anymore somebody had to transpose the whole thing and redo it because those scores were lost we ready to dig into this album yep let's let's do it let's hit Song one, side one, the day begins. first start listening to it it really does sound like something like a nelson riddle kind of beginning uh orchestral beginning but then the second part like uh, the opening sounds kind of like uh like to me it sounds like one a greek a greek piece from like a pure Ghent suite or something like that and then or even beethoven's sixth i mean those are two things that kind of jumped into my mind but it is a nice overture i mean there, there's this really kind of he as Doug was mentioning earlier, that he does a really good job of just kind of bringing in pieces from the 
rest of the album. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm odd man out. Uh, my musical tastes have changed considerably since I bought this, but it just sounds like the soundtrack to an unknown movie that somebody put on a belt <laughs> to me. Uh, I mean, I I appreciate all of these musical interludes in terms of the whole album. I yeah. don't I don't want to list. I mean, I, if you listen to the album, they're an integral part of it. They're an important part of it. But I just want to say that. Um, at times when we were list, doing this album or since we've been doing this album or talking about it and listening to it, there were times when I was just, uh, I, I got to put on another Moody Blues album to remind myself <laughs> why I liked them so much. Um, and it was usually after hearing not so much this as much as the other little bits that sounded like they were straight out of a 1940s, you, you know, fast talking New York musical or something. Oh, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. That, um, there's a couple of parts like that. In there, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yes. You know, they're doing things that are common in those things like imitating traffic and uh, yeah, hustle and yeah. bustle. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. You said you had a hard time going through this uh, music. Um, did you find yourself wanting to listen to Foghat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug, I don't ever find myself wanting to listen to Foghat. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, after the it kind of dies down, they just start laying down some kind of pad stuff in the, with the orchestra that's when the the narration comes in and there's right. that line in there about the cold-hearted orb that rules the night removes yes. the colors from our sight i don't know the first time i heard it i always wondered if that was about the tv no 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 it's about the moon because think about when the full moon's out and you go outside everything uh, looks the same looks almost like black and white yeah yellow gray and red is white or whatever the thing he says but is. we I mean, decide like, which is right outside Red is gray and yellow white, but we decide which is right. Which, which is, is an illusion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's because it's, uh, you know, the, the cold-hearted orb is going away because brave Helios is waking yep. his steeds. He's going to drive that uh, sun across the sky. That's right. Yeah. Good thing my mom's see a poet. A yeah. foghead ever pulling off. Uh, <laughs> that's right. To, uh, that's true. Greek mythology. Well, that's Helios. <laughs> they don't be, have. You know, they don't a even slow have, ride, a, right? have a driving wheel. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, well, I, I think this. I do think this. Not as much as the one at the end, but uh, the one at the end, you get the, the idea of how pointless this rushing around was all day. But this one, it, it's like I'm ready for the day. I'm. I'm the night's yeah. been tedious too. And, uh, yeah, we need the warmth. We need the sun, but I, I think it works. Uh, yeah. I had the opposite reaction. You did Tony L listening to this album, getting ready for this week was the most fun I've had with the record. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. It, it got inside me more than it ever did before. But no, I mean the, the spoken word stuff fits. It fits yeah. with what they're trying to do, and it and it's a yeah. nice intro, kind of setting up the little journey of the day you're on, right? Yeah, right. it's. And, I still, and, I still think it's a little pretentious, but that's just. I, you know, if any other band had done it, it probably would drive me crazy. And yeah. now we've got Dawn and the song "Dawn Is a Feeling." All right, so this is the 
first song that actually has the Mellotron on it. You kids at home, if you're wondering how the what the Mellotron actually sounds like, the start of this song is the Mellotron. And that makes some sense because these guys, and what I mean by these guys is I mean the band and the orchestra never they never were in the same room together. That's right. So it makes sense that the Mellotron was kind of the basic uh, orchestral track by which they lay, the the orchestra mm-hmm. laid down the foundation of the music on top of it. Yeah, this uh, is uh, this is Mike Pender's song, right? And, uh, and Justin Hayward sings lead on most of it. And yeah, yeah it's just it's it's kind of a little bit uh, like a day in the life thing itself, where you have Justin singing in the beginning and Mike Pender pops in. Uh, and sings a little bit that I think is appropriate for his voice. See, uh, I don't like it. I don't like really? it. It's, it's jarring to me. Yeah, it I sounds. I think it's tone, supposed to be. It sounds think, tone really? deaf. I don't know. For me, I, I actually like his vocals quite a bit on this. Yeah. Um, so that's two against one. <laughs> oh, there you go. I do dig the piano part in, uh, yeah. in the bridge. It's a cool little piano part. Piano part's listening. cool, and I yeah. love the drums on it, too. It's just got that yeah. nice kind of, kind of jazz uh, brush And the sound. smell of the grass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people made a big deal out of it. He swears that that's not about... Apparently, there's some kind of plant that people were smoking at this time and uh, oh man i didn't even think about that when i was he says no 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 it's really grass that you fly upon (laughs) i mean i mean at some point right you got to take a musician's word for it that they weren't singing about what everyone else thought they were singing about yeah it wouldn't make a damn bit of sense in the context of this i don't think i don't think pender would lie about it i don't think he gives a damn (laughs) but I, i think it's a great song i do too um, really good song, and then it goes into this kind of orchestral piece that sounds like Afternoon of the Fawn or something. Yeah, the morning uh, has this kind of weird, what I would call, and granted, I'm not sophisticated, so. Bear with me. That's kind of old world Spanish Italian kind of feel mm-hmm. to it. It just invokes kind of you could see like yeah. a little Italian village or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the it's the song that start. It, it's the first song on this album that has that signature ah, yeah, in the background yeah. on it. You know. That's Lodge doing that, isn't it? Yeah, but Ray Thomas, Ray Thomas wrote and sings this song, I believe. And he's a very good singer. He is. He, he is. is. I had no and idea. I just thought he was the flautist and had to play. He, he acts like a circus act most of the time during their shows because he doesn't <laughs> well, have anything to do because he can't play a flute all the time. <laughs> it's uh, unless you're Ian Anderson, right? Um, After Ray Thomas couldn't continue without uh, because of health problems. Ian Aronson find out and he goes, why didn't they ask me? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, I, I would love to play uh, Nights in White Set. No, <laughs> that's that's can you real. imagine? Yeah. Probably been practicing uh, it for with, years. Standing on one leg playing Nights in White Set. <laughs> and, 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 and this is the time I want to just uh, reiterate my love for this band. For those of you who think that I'm playing, I'm, I'm not, I don't have that feeling. I, at one point, or I still do, I guess, I own a Ray Thomas solo album, 
I own two Justin Hayward solo albums. I own a John Lodge solo album and the Blue Jays album, which is John Lodge and Justin Hayward together. <laughs> um, and at one point, I told you this the other day, Doug, at one point I owned that uh, War of the Worlds album that has Justin Hayward on, that yeah. great Justin Hayward song on it. I don't know where it is now, but <laughs> I owned yeah, that I was, once too, and it's worth a ton of money now. I wow. was, I was, uh, yeah, I was all in with this band at one point. So speaking of Ray Thomas, yeah, he's, he's, he's a good singer. I like his voice. Yeah. And he's the uh, guy that plays the flute, which is another big part of, uh, the Moody Blues sound. band sound. Yeah. To his credit, he plays some of the piano on this album as well. Well, and, and this is another one of those uh, instrumental parts kind of sounds like an old forties cartoon to me in some ways, the orchestral part. Um, da, da, you know, da, da, da. yeah. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. I like it, but I, I, I can imagine myself giving someone hell for liking this too. (laughs) But, um, moving on to the next song, you said something tonight that I never, ever thought of. And it, it's making me rethink my feelings about some of the orchestral stuff. Well, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) I say, I appreciate that, Doug. And that's when you were, and that's for, so this next song is, is lunch break. Um, slash peak hour. And the lunch break is the instrumental part. And when you said what you said earlier, which is, yeah, it's, you know, it's got that sounds of bustle hustle and bustle or whatever i don't know why i never thought about that that makes perfect yeah. sense and it's a dumb thing not to think, well, about, you know, when you think about this album right i thought about gershwin's rhapsody in blue on this one i mean he must have listened to that to, to uh, i can say that yeah well this this song is basically a conversation about what well half of it is describing everybody in a hurry I guess at lunchtime or or no, they're in a hurry trying to get to lunch or back to the office or whatever. And then there's this break where it stops and it's a completely different tune. And they start talking about, you got to take it easy. You got to slow down. Yeah. Uh, This is a John Lodge song written by John Lodge and sung by John Lodge, the bass player. And you can tell it was written by a bass player why it's going on. Cause it's, <laughs> it's got that. Yeah, it is. The bass is just doing whatever it wants. And it's really pushing this whole thing. It really is. And I almost can't I've, hear anything that, uh, Justin Hayward's playing on this. This is my favorite song on this album. It didn't it's, used to be, yeah. but it is now. It almost um, sounds like a monkey song. Well, it's got it's got a kind of a garage rock thing going to yeah. it, you know. Yeah. But it also it also it also is the one song, or maybe there's there's one other song, but this song is the first one on the album that really feels like it it's from the '60s. Yeah. It's got that yeah. '60s feel to it. Um, and then the other, I, it's it, got his voice going peak ah oh, oh, yeah. that yeah. Yeah. it's so <laughs> identifiable with the Moody Blues that. And yeah. then the and then the other weird thing about it is um 
the middle part where he where he sings, you know, it makes me want to run out and tell them. That sounds so much to me like it, like an outtake from Odyssey and Oracle. That yeah. bit, the song, it just yeah. feels very zombies of this era. And then the guitar kicks in, and it sounds like something Sid Barrett would have played. Yeah, you know, it's just the the song is just really. I don't know. It just grabs me in a way that it, that no other song on the album does, nor did it when I first listened to it. And, yeah, and I, I, this is Justin Hayward's a much better guitar player than I ever gave him credit for. This is I'm gonna get him up guitar player up uh, <laughs> so much, just like I did with the cars. But Justin Hayward has never played an unnecessary note on the guitar he's never played anything on the card guitar to say hey look at me when he lays down a track it's exactly what needs to be said by the guitar he gets some great tones on it it's very british with the fuzz tones and stuff but i love his guitar playing it's it's wonderful and never never wasted and never flashy it, we're here at the end of the first side, and I want to point out we got a Mike Pender song, and we got a uh, Ray Thomas song, and we got a Lodge song, and we've had four singers. Um, mm-hmm. This band, in my mind, is the most egalitarian, spread out. <laughs> uh, it has the most yeah. contributions from the widest sources. Everybody's pitching in. And yeah. everybody sings, and if you go see them in concert, you go, who's singing this time? You, you, you're looking around because they're changing the singers all the time, and they're all singing back, back up. Wow. Well, okay, so um, flip over. We flip, this, we flip the album over, and we get to side two, and the first song in the album, even though it is uh, technically not number six, it is the first song in the second side, which means what, Doug? It's a hit. That's right. So we got uh, we've got the technical term of the song is uh, or name of the song is Forever Afternoon, and then in parentheses Tuesday. But everyone knows it as Tuesday Afternoon. And this song was written by Justin Hayward. Um, yeah. He uh, he tells a story about how this seems so trite, but I have to say it. He goes, I sat down in a field, smoked a funny African cigarette, and the song just came out. It was, <laughs> And then he says this, it was a Tuesday afternoon, period. <laughs> so so um, uh, this has got the infamous fairyland of love. Yeah, got the... the- it's got that swinging bass line that kind of comes in oh, when he's talking yeah. about that fairyland. So you can just kind of picture everybody dancing around. Go, hey, we're in the fairyland of love. <laughs> <laughs> it's another one of those songs that uh, it's it's almost two songs put together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, you're absolutely right. Parts. Yeah, yeah. The, the the middle bridge is uh, much jauntier than the rest of it, which yeah. is the ballad. Uh, it's a great part. I think really the cool Beatles line. made that. Uh, you listen to Pink Floyd or or any of these guys, the Beatles with Paul writing one part and uh, Lennon writing the other and then putting them together and they really yeah. aren't the same song, but they work. Uh, Day in the Life is the best example of all. Yeah. But I think yeah. everybody started doing that after they saw how cool it worked. 
this is my favorite song on the album and also my favorite Moody Blues song it's of all. It's mine too. It's my favorite song on the I, album, my favorite Moody I Blues cannot, song. I cannot, if it comes on, it I'm immediately transported and yeah. I'm no longer useful for anything until I've heard it three times. And I just <laughs> absolutely love this. And this is the first time we find out about this giant hit maker, uh, yeah. J- Justin, Justin Hayward. Justin Hayward. Who, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's so interesting. He reminds me of a guy that would be picked to play Prince Charming. In, uh, <laughs> in, in some kind of movie. Um, yeah. The, uh, I, I, was, I looked up this guy and I've already forgotten him and I've lost my notes, but that, that guy that played the, in the three musketeers, the fourth, I guess he was the fourth musketeer, the young guy, Michael York. That's it. Exactly. Oh yeah. yeah he does. He, he does always reminds Michael me of York. Justin. Yeah. <laughs> it's Michael, Michael York with Luke Skywalker's hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's that same callow youth. Uh, yeah. Romantic and, Always a gentleman. I remember uh, Michael, he, uh, Michael York had to wrestle with uh, uh, a very desirable Raquel Welch in that show, and uh, yeah. he was he was a shy, um, callow youth. And and Hayward always the fact that he was never picked to play in something like The Princess Bride or something. I <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Yeah, he, he definitely had had the looks of of yeah, anyone in the band. Um, but he had talent too, as you said. He was yeah. a hit maker. I mean, his songs it struck a struck a chord with people, especially in the states. And his so, voice, yeah. uh, incredible voice, exceptional voice. Um, I listened to him singing uh, from the War of the Worlds, uh, "Forever Autumn." Yeah, and yeah. I, it's just he, it's amazing he is, what he does with that voice. He's one. He's in my top twenty, if not higher than that, of rock and roll singers. Maybe my top yeah. ten. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think he's fantastic. And I'll tell you something else that's interesting about the Moody Blues. If all these singers they have, they don't have one who uh, sing with that rock and roll breaking gravelly. voice or gravelly. Uh, yeah. not, none of them have that. It's all <laughs> you imagine Rod Stewart. Pure. Yeah, Rod Stewart <laughs> jumping in on... <laughs> Or Jagger. Well, that's I mean, that's funny. That. Uh, it's funny you say that because even the even the even the uh, McCartney, who's you know, oh yeah, he'd, kinda, he'd do it. And, he'd, he'd get that growl going sometimes. Yeah, that's some of my Lennon, favorite stuff he does. Lennon but. would too. And think about twist and shout. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let me say one thing before we move on from this song. Uh, there's a kind of a a technical feat on this album. Um, there's a part where. Uh, Hayward's vocals are in stereo and they're they're really echoey and they're uh, panned on either side and it's it's a pretty amazing sound and then he's just what we call dry on one channel there's no echo there's no reverb or anything on it and back in 1967 to do that somebody had to painstakingly sit there and pan his vocals and turn off the reverb at the same time. And that could only happen once. Huh. Like, and so like today we have computers and you, we have these things called, uh, you can, you can uh, do automation. But back then it was, if you were mixing an album, it was like you were an, uh, just part of the band. It was an amazing, and this 
particular thing is pretty amazing. Well, so. you know, they considered that engineer part of the band. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Praised so, him heavily. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty well, amazing. And, and like like other things on this album, this this song or this this track is kind of broken into two things. Um, and the next track is called Evening Evening Time or Time to Get Away, Evening Time to Get Away, which oddly enough wasn't originally listed on the album when it came out. Yeah. part of it was just part of the afternoon and it wasn't listed but it's well john lodge song john lodge yeah. sings it it's a separate song it's odd that that wouldn't be listed but um, yeah, i'm looking at the album right now and you're right it's not on there yeah yeah but but later albums they do give him credit and they do list it um i like this song a lot i, I do too the, the falsetto part is a little strange to me um yeah you know the yeah it's a little weird I, but is that um, i guess that's lodge or is that penter who, so. who is he? i, I, think, I think that's lodge that's yeah lodge. I th- it's got to be lodge um he's always doing that when he's singing back up i don't know why yeah, when he's got, it almost sounds like slim whitman's back there but. <laughs> yeah it's not it's it's a little odd but the song's good and i and i feel like the mellotron on this song is the most beatlesque of the yeah. mellotron on any I, other I, song my notes out. i've got this is the mellotron and it's got that horn bridge that yeah it's on the Mellotron and it's got those airy strings that the Mellotron makes. Um, and then another thing is Hayward's acoustic guitar playing on this is just fantastic. Um, Wait, this, this, uh, this one got stuck in my head for yeah. two or three days. I've, yeah, mine too. I could not stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> time to get away. What, what's, what's odd to me is that I, I was always a, and I still am, but I was always kind of a Haywood guy, Hayward guy. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I kind of gave John Lodge kind of second billing, but, yeah. um, on listening to this and I have not listened to this album probably in 25 years, uh, before we decided to do it. And in listening to it again, John Lodge's songs are my favorite songs on the album. Yeah. Well, they're not my favorite, but they are, I give I'm with they, you, Tony. I, I gave him short shrift and I think that he's, a much better songwriter and singer than I gave him credit, and a hell of a much better. His, li- his lyric, his lyrics aren't quite as goofy as some of the other songs on the album either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and you haven't been pounded over the head on uh, FM radio with his songs over That's true. and over That's and true. over. But, but yeah. like you said about Tuesday afternoon, I've never gotten, I've never gotten sick of that song or nice I can't and like that. Neither once. one of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, either one of those songs do I get sick of, including the a- ending part, which I've memorized as burned on my. Like I said, I haven't listened to it probably in at least that song in 10 years and the album 25. And I still know all the words, all the, the, the yeah. spoken word part, everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then we move on to the second quote unquote track on side two, which is evening. It starts off with another little '50s musical number. Um, That's exactly what I've got in my notes. The '50, like a '50s musical soundtrack, is what it's. Although it's got, it's got this odd little. The beginning of it, that 
always it always for some reason every time i hear it makes me think of that bizarre soundtrack for the first planet of the apes movie i don't know why i could just see charlton heston running through running through the dudes and being chased by you know a bunch of gorillas or whatever but um well yep i that didn't occur to me But then, but then it moves into the sunset, which is a Mike Pender song and one that I find really, really tiki. Some oh, sort of yeah. bizarre nineteen forties cartoon music of deepest, darkest Africa. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> it is yeah. kind of uh, it does sound like a, a a big monster walking through the woods coming to get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, um, we really start breaking the day into little pieces here. I guess everybody <laughs> had a song about this time of day, so they had to <laughs> You got evening, sunset, twilight, night. Yeah, but evening time is in the afternoon part. That's what I'd never got understood. Yeah, I don't either. It's <laughs> that's probably that's probably why it wasn't listed on the album. Yeah. Um, but whoops. Uh, yeah, oops. Um but yeah, so and then uh unless you guys want to say more about the uh the the uh lion sleeps tonight, we can move on to the next song. Um, <laughs> Which is Twilight Time, which is a great song. Ray Thomas number. Yeah, and to me, and I can't remember if I said this earlier or if I said this before we started, the most classically sounding Moody Blues song. I mean, this sounds like a Moody Blues song from well into their deep into their cat their album uh, catalog. I think it's their most psychedelic sounding song. It is. I, it I, is. I know. Yeah, it's got with those that you know that staccato bass line and the kind of the buried vocals that are in it and. uh yeah, you are making me want to listen to this album again. <laughs> <laughs> and then it leads probably into my favorite orchestral part of the album, uh, even though it's really, really short. short. I don't know if they're introducing the night time at this point. Or oh, what, yeah. But. That's, in fact, the song is called The Night. And then we have uh, what at the time when this was released was not, but ended up eventually five years later becoming the monster hit on this album, Nights in White Satin. Nights in White Satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Written by a 15-year-old Justin Hayward. Jeez. Which um, a, a real adult could not write this song. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that I'm, 
my stupid high school romance, uh, this song played a very important part in that. Did you get, did you get white satin sheets? Well, I didn't, I, I didn't even know it. Now let's talk about the album cover. <laughs> if you look at the album cover, there's two knights holding lances. So I was in my 20s before I understood that it was not about knights dressed in white sat <laughs> coming to the castle to find his girlfriend. <laughs> now, wait a minute. How, how did you, you own the album? How did you not know it's it because was because I own the album. Look, there's two knights on there. Look at the name of the song. There's no K in it. Well, I'm also, I don't uh, pay very much attention to it. And, uh, and it's about, spelling. it's it's got a cold-hearted orb in it. <laughs> not till later. Yeah, yeah Not till still. after the knight storms the castle and saves the girl, <laughs> then the sun yeah. goes down. But there's yeah. no well, hanky-panky. These are good people that have morals and they don't run around rolling in sheets <laughs> made out of satin. Well, you know, uh, yeah, kind of homes have satin sheets in them, Tony. The, yeah, yeah. A good American home would only have cotton. <laughs> the uh, the single version of the song when it was released didn't have the orchestra orchestral parts in it. It was just yeah. a mellotron. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different versions of this song. I think there's, I uh, I counted when I did research on it. I think I counted four different releases of this song. I actually like the one without the orchestra. I like the one with the orchestra, but I like the one without the orchestra, mainly maybe because, as Doug says, when you hear something so much, any little kind of twist on it makes it new and interesting. And it's interesting to me uh, the way they were able to get the depth out of the Mellotron on this song without the orchestra yeah. parts being on it. Well, you know, what I heard was that they this was the first or the only song on the album where the orchestra and the band were together were together yeah, yeah. I, I read yeah. that too but i don't know if maybe the how, when it's released as a single do you do they mix the orchestra out or was it recorded later because as you said there's multiple versions maybe they just yeah. chose a different version for the single version i don't know maybe the yeah. uh orchestra version version was too ponderous i mean it is yeah. heavy-handed it is, it is pretty heavy-handed all that weird stuff that or that the lilting stuff at the end where they, yeah. um, you know, Justin, Justin Hayward said that he played this for the band and they went, yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. <laughs> they added the, the Mellotron. And as soon as they added the Mellotron part, that and then, and then, and then yeah. everybody dug it immediately. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. funny. And I, I can see that, but you know, let's talk about, this is just such a teenager song. He's in sure. love. It's, it's just like an average stupid teenager like I was when I was uh, my, my girlfriend tortured her family with this song over and over again. And I was listening <laughs> to it, too. Uh, but this is the we've just invented love for the first time. <laughs> and nobody understands what we're going through. It's it's yeah. impossible for anyone to understand us. Um, we're not like all those bourgeois people who've given up beauty for uh, comfort and wealth. And the line up, people, they tell me thoughts they cannot defend. Uh, you talk about 
an adult, a real adult can't say, couldn't say that <laughs> about his love affair. Well, Having yeah. said all that, I still love the song. He yeah. was, how, how old was he when they recorded this? 21, 22? I, I think don't, it was I don't, 21. I, I thought he was closer to 19. Is that right? Jeez. Oh, may, maybe Amazing. so. Uh, I'm just, it's just funny that he held on to this song for that long. Um, yeah. And and because uh, you're right, it does uh, it does kind of have that that uh, that feeling to it. Um, I don't know. And it, it's got to 103 the year it came out. <laughs> yeah, and then it went to number two in the states in 1972. Yeah, Is that right. Had a second. Yeah. Um, had it's second just life. it's it's an incredible story. Um, yeah, yeah. Two weeks at number two. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, I again, we've talked about this That's a lot on this, on this on this yeah. podcast. How we'll we'll be talking about an album that, when it was released, was either thought of as a as not very good, in case in point, the Sweetheart of the Rodeo, or it just didn't do anything, and then found a found a, a, a it hit a spot someplace later on. Case in point, yeah. Layla, Odyssey mm-hmm. and Oracle. This album, it's just weird. Yeah. Well, that brings us to a new segment. (laughs) We have all been here before. Tell me all the things this album has in common with Odyssey and Oracle. Uh, Mellotron. Mellotron. Groovy cover. Groovy cover. Okay, I'm just repeating what you guys are saying. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The band, the band has the article, a definite article D in the name. I didn't have that. (laughs) Um, Uh, Connection to the Beatles. They both came hard on the heels of uh, Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. Uh, In fact, Odyssey and Oracle was recorded in the same studio, but. both of these were right after that album, and I, I assume were influenced by it. Uh, mm-hmm. Both took forever to become hits. Yeah. Both just kind of disappeared when they came out and became big deals later on. Well, uh, and here here's something that you just mentioned. this The song that became the single on the album, the band didn't initially like at first, and that's the same thing with uh, Time of the Season. It's not that the mm-hmm. band didn't like it, but the singer... Colin Blunstow didn't like it. Yeah. Both these bands have uh, an abundance of people, uh, good singers. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. And I had a list of more than that, and I can't find it. So, (laughs) (laughs) but there were a lot of interests. Both are falsely called psychedelic, in my opinion. I agree with that. I agree with that. Although this album has a little bit more of that to it than Odyssey. Uh, There's nothing psychedelic about Odyssey. Well, there's a sitar on it. I can't ever uh, figure it, but Justin Hayward is listed as playing sitar on it. Maybe they just put that on there. So maybe he, maybe he just sat on, maybe he just sat on a guitar. Yeah. They They just got that in there. Yep. Uh, and then at the very end, we get the recitation. We get more cold-hearted orb. Bedsitter people look back and lament. Another day's useless energy spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one. Lonely man cries. And it's the one that got the radio play, as Doug mentioned, on, on album-oriented rock. They would play that recitation i mean i i remember the first time i heard the song without it 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 was weird yeah it's weird to hear it without it 
I yeah. used to think I was real cool because the album would end and right on cue, I would say, breathe deep, the gathering. <laughs> when I'm out with a girl or something, I thought, oh, she's going to think, oh, he's so deep. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't She didn't think you were a creep because you were talking about breathing deep and watching <laughs> lights fade in every room. And, you know, impassioned lovers wrestling as one. Yeah. <laughs> a lonely hearted man cries for love and has none. How about the senior uh, citizens? That's how the wish date they were young. <laughs> that's at the end of the date. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we get the it ends with the gong. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> it does end with a gong. Probably the yeah. best use of a gong on any album. I, right? I'll I'll give you that. It's the best use of. <laughs> There's some albums that needed the gong at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, uh, guys, I think that wraps up our uh, our discussion of uh, one of the um, quintessential albums of the late 60s and of a band that uh, had a life well, well into the 80s and hits. 70 well. million albums they sold. And they're they still had, going. Yeah. Yeah. Graham Edge has to have another drummer with him, though. He wears out yeah. too early. But he's in his 70s. Yeah. Late 70s. They they uh, made it to the Hall of Fame right after uh, Ray Thomas died. And yeah. uh, I think uh, Graham Ed said he was 78 or 79 when they were being inducted. So Jeez. that's that's a long time to play drums. Yep. Yeah. And I heard that uh, Ray Thomas knew they were being inducted, but he died. Before. Couldn't ha- hang on. Yeah, couldn't hang on. And that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be looking at the second album by a group of guys from Athens, Georgia, making an album of jangly guitars. So Tony should like this one. R.E.M.'s Reckoning. We're on... We're on Facebook. Be sure and look us up there. And if you're inclined, please leave us a review. We're also on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. You can also email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Please leave us a note or tell us what albums you would like for us to look at in an upcoming podcast. And if you know of anyone that likes music or the album format, please let them know about this podcast. We'd appreciate you guys spreading the word. So for our host, Doug Cooper, and our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And we'll meet you in the fairyland of love.